Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Altman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today on episode 97, we welcome Tommy Unolis. This former stand-up comic turned SaaS founder has extensive experience helping businesses become more efficient and profitable through process, accountability, and data. He's currently the managing director of Ops Analytica, an operations analytics platform that focuses on managing and measuring daily team activities for large multi-unit businesses. Tommy, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So please just take a few minutes, give us kind of that story overview of your career and how those earlier experiences led into what you're doing now. Okay, yeah, so I have like a typical data founder career. Started at 14 in the restaurant business, uh, making cheesesteaks in the Columbia Mall in Maryland. My mom would drop me off, I had a learner's permit. That led to a career in restaurants and like just hospitality in general. Um, I ended up going to the University of Denver Hotel Restaurant School in the early 90s. And I graduated from that. And then I had a job back in Maryland where I was from, or actually Northern Virginia, managing a country club. And like a typical guy right out of college, first job, the only thing they don't teach you in college is that you actually know nothing about the real world when you get out there. So I'm just getting smacked down at this job. And uh, I'm talking to my best friend at the time, Allison, she's still a good friend. And uh, she's if she hears this, she'll be like, what the hell? I thought we were still friends. But uh, she's like, we're talking. And I, I was class clown in high school. And like, but I had never really done any inner, like I did some like plays in high school and just goofed off with my friends. But like, I was just talking to her. I'm like, I should just be a stand-up comic. That'd be so much easier than this. And she gave me like the best advice of my entire life. She's like, dude, you're 23. You don't have a wife, kids, house in the suburbs, mortgage. This is the time to go be a stand-up comic. You're going to regret it if you don't do it in your 40s. And so I literally, like, it was like idea back ahead, idea here. And I'm like, okay, I'll go be a stand-up comic. So I like literally like looked online, found open mics, went down to Baltimore. Actually, I mean, I looked online, to be honest with you, I and mean, that's a lie. I think I looked in the paper. I think I actually went to like the free paper for both DC and Baltimore and found an open mic in Baltimore, because this would have been like 95. So I don't know that you could have gone on the internet and found that at that time. So I almost, I'm gonna say I was lying earlier. I went and looked at like one of the free papers. Then I went to, uh, I went down to this comedy club. They say, come back in two weeks, you can do a set. And so I wrote like six minutes of the dirtiest material I could think of. And I went down there, I had like 10 friends and legit, like I made everyone laugh on a joke and something that only comics know, but like when you make people laugh in a comedy club, all their heads go back. And it's just the natural reaction of your body while laughing. But I remember seeing that and going, oh my God, like remember this moment, dude, this is what you want to do. And so literally that night I became a professional stand-up comedian in my mind, mm -hmm. like circumstances worked out. I got laid off, whatever. Anyways, so the next 10 years, I'm a stand-up comic. I'm traveling around the country. I'm kind of based out of Denver. I went back to where I went to uh, undergrad because all my friends were still there. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm working at the comedy club. I'm like doing restaurant management stuff. And I'm just kind of like, you know, that was a good career to be in the comedy world working my way up. I end up in Chicago in like 98, 99. I end up in LA in 2001. And then by like 2004, I'm sort of really like tired of being broke. I'm now in my thirties. I'm like, oh my God, not making any money. I had gone to LA for a year and a half and I lost a lot of my road gigs. So a lot of my income went away because I wasn't going out and doing those gigs. And there's like a billion comics for every paid spot in the country. So I just because I'm coming back from the Vegas Comedy Festival and I was just like, oh, what am I doing? I had such a bad experience in that show. I was just like, I literally called the University of Denver, my alma mater. I called the business school and I go like, how do I get an MBA? And the lady on the phone was like flabbergasted. Like what idiot hasn't even done like a modicum of reason. You, you just call up a school and go, how do you get an MBA? Like, that's ridiculous. Thank God I didn't tell her my name. And I was like, okay, 
here's she's like okay you gotta take the gmats and you gotta apply and i'm like cool thanks click you know <laughs> i'm just like driving across utah like heading back to denver and i was just like okay gotta get the gmats got the gmats got into school um did an mba met my wife and then i started getting into the professional world and I had one little job. Well, so first of all, I thought an MBA would erase 10 years of stand-up comedy experience and basically waiting tables and managing restaurants. It did not. So don't believe that marketing hype that if you're thinking, hey, I've been doing some whack job thing, I'm just gonna get an MBA and that's gonna magically make people ignore the previous decade of your life. It doesn't work that way. So I was really hard, it was really hard for me to get a job because no one knew what to make of me because I had like degrees and I had done stuff, but then I was also like, uh, you know, not doing normal career path stuff. I ended up at Quiznos and that's how I got into data because when I was at Quiznos, we were at the top of our like store count on the way down and we were auditing, which means we were sending guys out into the field to visit the restaurants every month. And they came to me and they were like, cause I was kind of the op services guy at that time. They're like, you got to figure out how to report on this. And their idea was that me and my assistant would just hand enter in 5,000 hundred question audits every month into an Excel so I could run some charts. And I was like, you guys are psychopaths. There's no way that's happening. So I ended up going through, I went to IT, they said no. I went to IT again, they said no. Finally, I ended up building my own thing. And so I built like a, with a, like a platform, I built like basically a survey monkey, if you will for like the 2008, 2009 smartphone. Mm. And so that was the first time and we could go online and download the data into Excel and then I could run reports and, you know, we could we could just actually had real time data about what was happening in the restaurants operationally. And I was like, it was a great thing. And then I did that and a buddy of mine who was working at a company, they were doing semantic workflow at the time, like business process. He was like, hey, man, I got recruited by Semantic. They're looking for someone to backfill me. You want to take that job? I took it. We ended up buying that company as an earnout like six months later because they were going out of business. And then in 2013, I had a guy that worked for me and I was like, hey, I need you to do a training project. So build that thing I built at Quiznos and just build it in this so we can see it. We made a video. Which Witch called us. They wanted to buy it. That was my market. That was my total market like research on the platform I'm like someone wanted to buy it i just put a video up it must be a solid market right and uh and then i started like an 18 month nights and weekends and 50 all-nighters of just trying to get this thing built after work you know so we could get it into some restaurants and then in 2015 that company was kind of going away because Semantic was moving to the cloud. They didn't really want to have their on-prem workflow solution anymore. So our, the writing was on the wall for our company just in general, because that's what we did, that one thing. So I was like, and SaaS was brand new. SaaS was like, people were still selling on-prem software when I started this business. I was like, okay, I want to build one thing great. So me and my one of my partners from that previous company, we started Ops Analytica in 2015. and. The goal of our company is to help our clients manage their teams and measure and collect data on their performance um, on all of those repeatable tasks that every business does. I mean, all business is just 50 repeatable tasks that they just do in order every day and then magically money appears, right? So like we just help manage and collect data on those repeatable processes that people do every day. Because when they miss steps in those processes, they affect customer satisfaction, sales and profits, period. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you have to button up what you're doing, you know, and make sure you're not missing any steps, because if you are, it's going to affect your business. And that's, that's my total data journey. So hotel restaurant guy, stand up comic, founder, data analytics company. <laughs> Yeah. So if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that story, I know. you know, he's <laughs> the riches. He showed up in New York. He was <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about a classic uh, data story, but so obviously, I mean, here at data leadership lessons, we're, we're interested in, in how people have gotten to this place, but obviously uh, we're all kind of data 
aficionados, like we understand that there's value in that data and, and the work that we're doing. So in your current business, do you, I assume then it sounds like you've, you've expanded beyond just like the restaurant focus. Like this sounds like something pretty common. It's not specific to any particular industry. Is that? Yeah. True? So as you know, as a bootstrapped founder, so we basically took the residual earnings that we had from our previous business and we used that to kind of live off of and start the new business in 2015. We chose to talk restaurants because all of us had worked in restaurants, but we're like an Excel. We're vertical agnostic. Like it doesn't matter to me, but when you're, especially when you're a bootstrap founder, you can't create a brand with no money that spans all verticals. You got to pick one and go, this is my lane and I'm going to get great at this, but there's nothing in my platform that makes me restaurant uh, specific. It's just where we chose to have those initial conversations. But now we're, we're in medical, we're in recycling, we're in automotive, you know, any kind of like large multi-location business, any kind of business where there's a lot of human process going on, or there's just mobile data capture needs that you have, right? Like it might not be that you're doing every process, you just are tired of writing it on a piece of paper, handing it to somebody else. And then two days later, they scribble it into an Excel. We can just cut the middleman out and you can just type it into a phone app and it's into a database, right? So those are kind of where we play. Um, and well, it, but, it, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. The, the, yeah. the, the thing that I, I observe is, is that any business, especially as they grow, you kind of start by doing the best you can. If you're lucky, like they're writing down some data, or they're capturing data somewhere into a local yeah. repository of some sort, or they're, they're even just handwriting some things. But then, you know, you can you can go up this um, ladder of of sophistication where you you end up you know okay well maybe we can hand enter something into a mobile app and that's a step in the right direction if you yeah. can create sensors or other automations like so much the better and like continue yeah. to evolve that um and i think it, i mean it's got to be an exciting time too because i think there's a general awareness that most founders out there especially and in growing businesses recognize Data is probably going to be pretty important to our future. We probably want to at least be thinking about this stuff strategically earlier in the process than maybe they had 15, 20 years ago, um, you know, kind of in the in the earlier days that you were starting out in your career. Well, yeah. And I think, too, one of the things to note is that, you know, even in the future, like where's that new book, The Adaptation Advantage and everything like that? There's going to be human beings next to sensors, next to robots, next to systems like POS systems or some other manufacturing SAP, whatever system, you know, and then you're going to have the Internet, too. And all of these things are going to be creating data and then something's got to go look at what that data is, analyze it and then tell the things that are actually doing things, human beings and robots, hey, go do this instead. Right. That's the future of work, uh, whether it happens now or 10 years from now or 100 years from now, I don't know when. But what's happened is for the, what, the who we serve, which are these large multi-location entities, the, the human part has always been this gigantic black hole. Like since the 80s, we've had POS systems. And prior to that, we had re cash registers that you could pull. So pulling a cash register just means you can pull the data out and put it onto like a some, I don't know, whatever, cobalt machine or something. That's how old it was. But like, uh, you know, and so the human part was always the problem because you had no, there was no technology available to manage what the human beings were doing in the business. And so everybody by default shifted to paper processes, which are garbage but they were better than nothing, right? So paper processes and forms, and then also training with the idea that if we train the heck out of people and we give them a piece of paper, then we have a better shot of getting them to do what we want them to do than if we don't do that. But that was like, you know, the best option out of a bunch of bad options. Had McDonald's started in 2010, like the McDonald brothers, and there had never been a chain restaurant prior to that, they would have been using iPads to collect human data, but they just didn't have that option in the 40s and 50s. So generally what we uncover for people is this ginormous black hole that they've just 
you know, because here's the thing too, I can train the heck out of you. And this happens every day in every industry. I can train you, you can pass a training test, but you do not have to change your behavior with training. And as long as there's no process or data collection in place around that, people will pass these tests all day long and just do what they've always done because they don't want to change. And then you don't get the benefit of all the training you're doing, right? So we really focus on that human aspect of how do I get this guy's activity, Bob's activity into a database so I can go, okay, this is good or bad, right? And you've just touched at the core of what we call data leadership in that what we what we define about data leadership is our intent with data leadership is to maximize data value. And the definition that we use for data value is the differential in outcome, in, in measurable outcome due to a change in activity or change yeah. in decision or what have you from analyzing data or working with technology or whatever you do, choose your thing, but it yeah. has to create a differential. What would the status quo have been if you did nothing, if you apply this knowledge or learning or insight or whatever, now you have a new outcome. Whatever that differential is, is the thing we're trying to maximize. And that it is a change function. Data drives a change function to become valuable. And that is key. And that's what I like is that you're focused on that. And what you're saying too is like, hey, you're capturing data somehow, maybe hopefully, maybe not as much as you should, but then you capture the data. And if that data just sits there, and even if we tell them, hey, this is how you do this, and this is how you do this, they keep doing the same thing. You have literally gained nothing of value by even yeah. capturing that data because you're not acting differently from it. Well, and well, we, we call it the ops analytic way, but it's basically the Toyota way or whatever. It's a feedback loop, right? And so the idea is that you go out and like, so a lot of these chains will audit it. An audit is either going to be an internal or external inspection of the property on a quarterly basis. And then from that, and those have, I don't believe are auditing that much other than they're good at uncovering systematic, system-wide issues, right? Everybody's having a problem with the ice machine or everybody's having a problem with this part of our process. Okay, now we've identified sort of a system-wide issue. Then you have to analyze that issue, come up with a plan. Now you need a place to change the process, which can be training, but training, once again, does not a guarantee that people will change behavior. So having a system like Ops Analytica that manage the daily tasks that people are doing, you can easily change the process by, you can change the process by just adding a new question or changing a question or making someone do something else when something's wrong. You can now change the process and then you can bring your field people in place or whoever is inspecting stuff to go in and just identify that until the next audit. And so you just create a feedback loop where you identify an issue, you solve it, you change a process, you check that the process is being adopted, and then you double check again on your next whatever quality control round is, depending on how, you know, what you're doing. That could be every day or once a year or whatever. And so we just create that feedback loop and drill in and just constantly improve, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've called that in, in my framework, I call that the simple virtuous cycle where it's, you know, you know, measure, identify improvements and then improve and then measure some yes. more and identify improvements. And then improve. it's just a constant, it, it's continuous improvement. This, we didn't invent these ideas. It's just oh. a simple like, hey, look at the data, see what it tells you, try something to improve that efficiency or, or, or those outcomes that you need. And, and, you know, sometimes it's staring you in the face, like, yeah, the ice never works or like, Hey, you know, yeah. the, the McDonald's with their um, ice cream, it's become a joke. We know that already, but how do we measure that? And how do we actually get better if we're not going from a, a more methodical data driven perspective? It really is hard to manage those, especially when you think about, you know, especially something like the restaurant industry where you can have, hundreds, thousands of locations, managing change across a bunch of independent actors often creates complexities that are very difficult to wrap your head around and manage without some sort of common data uh, underneath. Well, and you know, part of our platform is like, we're most successful, like the companies that utilize us correctly are the ones that put us in every location because now they have a common platform, right? Yeah. And the, I, the great thing about our platform is you train the platform, right? You train Excel and then you can do anything you want in Excel. We're the same way. So if we can just train the guy, you pick up the tablet, you look at your schedule, you click on the next checklist that has to be done and you understand how to work the checklist, 
then the checklist can contain whatever you want it to contain and you can make those changes and not even inform anyone. Whereas in the past, if you were gonna change a process, you had to do a whole rollout and everybody had to come to a meeting and you had to train on it. Now I can just go, oh, instead of checking that number, I want you to check this number instead. Oh, and here's a picture. Oh, cool, that's where I check it, 32, okay, great, you know? And then they move on. And so we can actually speed up the change because the training is revolved around the system, not the individual process, right? And as long as we write them correctly and make sure they're clear to people, we don't seem to have any problem. And what we find that's interesting too, is that people start off with, again, the restaurant space, and we, like, we have other spaces, but in general, people start off with going, hey, just what are those daily safety, operational, we call them the red book processes from the restaurant industry, but it's those daily checklists that you have to do. And they mm -hmm. start there, but once they recognize the power of having this and it gets out to corporate, oh man, I've got guys that started with four checklists that have 144, that they built 140 of them themselves because they're just like, we need to know this. We need to know how that works. We're getting nailed by the government on this. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, we need to collect data, you know? So oftentimes, especially in manufacturing or anything, you have all these people out there doing, and then you have all the people thinking about what's happening and these guys get a hold of it. And then boom, it's just like out into the field, you know? Yeah. And all this talk of, of checklists. So I, I previously read the, the checklist manifesto and, and that got me thinking about different things, but I love, I love topics that when I can think of it, with two minds. And so those of yeah. you who, who watched um, the episode or listened to the episode uh, a couple weeks ago on uh, happiness is never being satisfied. Uh, we talked about how you can look at that from two different viewpoints. And we had a couple yeah. guests on and we were exploring that. And because it was some statement that I had made uh, during a keynote that I gave at a conference. But when we think about checklists, there's the side of me, like checklist manifesto side, where it's like complex, repeated yeah. sequence of events, very difficult to cover all those little minutia things, but they're well known and it's well repeated. Like you yeah. literally repeat this all the time, or it's a complex process that very rarely happens. Like the, the example around like an emergency situation in the cockpit of an aircraft, yeah. there is a certain sequences of, of steps to follow in particular situations that come up very rarely, but you really want to follow these steps when that does occur. Great circumstance for checklists because it is a known condition that there is a known sequence of steps you need to follow can be repeated can be isolated but is known when you have something like a audit finding that says you should have data governance and data governance probably needs a few things if you approach it from a we're going to check the box mentality you are probably going to do a disservice to the broader context because that is a situation that is highly nuanced probably not as well defined as many other proper checklist scenarios, but yeah. there's still some things that can help you if you are going through some steps because it will it will allow you to learn from those who have, have done this before, but you don't want to just say, well, I gotta check these boxes and check your your problem solving at the door. And, and it's like, when I think about these and, and think about different contexts, does that is is this something that comes up with your clients or as they as they think about different kinds of processes or different kind of business opportunities that they may follow where the data likely tells them hey there's an issue here it's not clear exactly how to solve this yet how do you go in and figure this kind of thing out well and that's what's the beauty of the checklist right because you can have and by the way checklist manifesto if you're looking for a read or a book to listen to get that book it is insanity good atul gawandi is like my like business savior I, I quote him all the time but you know but but it goes back to like so yes you're right you're not going to be able to do a checklist that talks about every aspect of get data governance but you could almost set one up like a quiz where you can prompt people to ask questions mm. of the data governance situation that, and that are gonna require them to now think and look at the nuance of this scenario, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're not gonna have a checklist that says, I uh, gotta put uh, you know, an extra, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever, network portal here, you gotta have a 32 character password here. Like that's not all gonna work, right? But you can use a checklist that goes over just what should we be thinking about here 
did we ask this question of the situation? You know, my uh, business partner's brother-in-law does M&A. And we were talking about this, uh, but he does like, you know, a very specific kind of M&A. But I'm like, yeah, so he's a lawyer. They're doing financial analysis. They're still running a process and a checklist. It's just, it might take six months to do, and there may be 35 steps to it. And it's not anyone checking one off each step as they go, but they, every business, all businesses is a bunch of repeatable processes. You don't have an actual business if it's not repeatable processes and you can't scale without repeatable process. So if repeatable process is in place, no matter if it's a consulting engagement or whatever, then there's a use case for a checklist of some kind if once again, not necessarily to be prescriptive, but to just ask or make sure we're asking all the questions we need to ask, you know, and then if we and then hopefully dive deeper to get to the real details so we can solve the actual problem. Um, and you asked me a question too, like, are my clients interfering with having this? And I would say, like, so I consider what we do operations management, right? We are a platform that helps the operations team, the guys that are actually delivering the product, they're actually making, building, delivering the products and services that we can then sell to make revenue, right? We're, we, we, we help those guys manage their business, whatever that is. And I would say that this is such a new discipline. This isn't something that people ever, they did it before, but they never had it be able to do it in the way we do it. So yeah. we're sort of like, we're still, on the cutting edge of this thing. Like, I believe like there's going to be, I don't know if it'll be checklist itself, but like we're still taking paper processes and just getting them digital because that's what the company has. And I don't think we've hit that inflection point yet where the software is so widely adopted and it's such a commonplace thing. I know we haven't because I'd be much richer and maybe I'd be doing this call from a sailboat. But like, you know, so I know we haven't yet, um, but we haven't gotten there yet where we're on that second gen version 2.0, where we're not creating, where we're not taking paper processes and putting them into a digital format, but we're creating digital processes from scratch that take advantage of the platform and its technology to change and shape operations across the board. We're not there yet, but I, we're heading in that direction. We'll obviously get there. It's just, you know, we're not there today. Yeah. As you talked about this, and, and I like your comment around, like, a business is repeatable processes. Like, it, yeah. it has to be. And I think a lot about consulting because that's where I, I, I came from and have spent a lot, uh, many years in and, and certainly work uh, closely with consultants in, in a number of capacities. But I think about consulting in that there is – there's a there's – a, contingent of consultants out there that think that they it's all in their brain and that everything is bespoke and it's about this wizardry that only they can do, which is not yeah. very scalable. And yeah. then there's another contingent of consultants that kind of take like the checklist approach to the nth degree and say, we can create and effectively script any kind of engagement to the PowerPoint deck slides. Yeah. And you can execute this with, you know, a, a half trained monkey can do this. And yeah. they, you know, attempt to do that in some cases, it seems. But the right middle ground, and this is where I said, and a good consultant can understand the patterns. They can apply the right checklist. They can they can execute on that, and you will get an okay result. The great consultants can then take that understanding of the patterns of the situation of those repeatable processes and understand what makes this circumstance unique? What makes this actually different than anything I've seen before? Because that little nugget is what makes that business competitive. So what makes it a business is this is this checklist, is, is this repeatable process. But what makes it unique and viable is what separates it from everything else. And that, if you can home in on that, then you can really do some amazing things because then you can start to create process around that unique competitive advantage and really do some amazing things for that business. Well, and we were consultants in our previous company when we were in the semantic partner channel and it was it was horrible so hard because we were always building custom software every six months to a senior manager slash early director who was trying to impress their boss and it was just always and they had no idea how to like you know 
scope or definer. They couldn't get, they, they thought it was about getting as many features in there as possible when it was really about just making the simplest version that actually works so your boss is actually happy that you spent $200,000 on something. But, but, but being a consultant, right? Like the value of the consultant is running the checklist, but then analyzing the data to find yeah. the nugget, right? That's like, anybody can run the checklist. So I can put the checklist in a blog and then you could steal it and copy it. But if you don't have the context of the experience and the education and best practices to analyze the data, you know, and then draw a conclusion from it, that's the value of, that's what, that's why you pay $350 an hour for somebody's time. You know, it's like that stupid, like that stupid meme where the guy came in, turned the wrench on one bolt and the guy was like, why is this $10,000? And he's like, yeah, because I knew which bolt to turn. That's why, you know what I mean? It's the yeah. same thing. Like from the consulting perspective, you can take all this can nonsense, right? And put it out there as, you know, blah, blah, I'm so smart. But it's the guy who can actually look at that and go, that actually is not telling us what you think it's telling us. It's telling us the exact opposite. And here's why. And if we tweak this, we pull this lever operationally in the business, we will start to see a change, you know? And that's that's really where I want to be. Mm -hmm. I want people and I, my clients that understand how to use the platform. And when I say understand, I mean like have implemented it culturally within their business. It's not just a bunch of things that we don't look at, we're just doing so to check a right. box, but we're actually utilizing it the way it's meant to be utilized and using the data to drive better decisions. They are, those are the guys that are getting those nuggets of value, right? And they're pulling those nuggets out. And I, I have a theory that operations management, like what I do and looking at like what you know, going back to that, that adaptation advantage and where business is going. Like when we first started this business, especially in the restaurant industry, 2015 through 2019, all we ever heard was from all these people we talked to was, hey, we gotta get a POS, we gotta get an app, we gotta have online ordering, we gotta have delivery, you know, whatever. The internet revolution for the last, let's say 10 years has been about how do I get my business and some of those key efficiency processes into the web so I can take it, I can be like an amp, like in your case of manufacturing, I can be more like Amazon and the restaurant space. It's how can I have DoorDash and Uber Eats and, you know, make sure I'm running a good business. But everybody's got that now, like that technology has not only been invented, it's been perfected and it's been democratized to everybody. You, I can be running a sneaker store out of my living room and I can have the same tools that, uh, you know, Walmart has when it comes to shipping and printing labels and all that kind of stuff. But operations management, I believe as we look at sensors, IOT, we look at robots and humans in the workplace, operations management is the next big competitive advantage because most of the problems that businesses have, whether it be customer service related, speed of service, cleanliness, whatever it is, they're all 99% of them have already been identified. They've already been trained on, they already know about them and they're generally not so big. Like, like in a restaurant example, you know, it's not very often that someone jumps over the counter and smacks your wife. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't happen every day. What generally happens is it's not one giant thing that pisses you off. It's a series of very little controllable things like the handle was like greasy and then my table was a little sticky and then there were no catch up and I didn't get my drink. And so it's all these like death by a thousand cut things. That's what's actually driving everyone insane. The big things are kind of handled. It's the death by a thousand cut things and the companies that employ an operations management data collection, uh, automate where you can, sensor where you can, and then and then just adherence to systems and process for humans, they will be able to control those death by a thousand cut things better. They will be able to identify problems faster and the real speed of business is going to be, how, can I, how quickly can I identify a problem, uh, crowdsource information on why this problem's happening, come up with a response, change a process uh, to fix the problem. It's that, once again, that virtuous cycle, how do I do that faster than my competitor? And what I think is gonna happen is 
you know, if you look at like good and great and all these books from like business that we all studied in the last 20, 30 years, the internet and this, this operations management layer and the automation and the systems and the data, this is going to change what's traditionally been the number one, number two, number three seed in any vertical, because the guy who can do, who can find the problem, crowdsource, all that thing I just talked about, can do that faster and do it repeatedly is incrementally going to start growing just because they're going to be better at customer satisfaction and speed of service. And so people will just start going to them faster because we're all babies and we want everything now when we want it perfect. And when you don't get that, you don't go back. Like it used to be, you know, whatever, you would give people a shot, but now it's like, nope, never again. Subway, you have burned me for the last time. I said, no pickles. You know what I mean? And so those guys that can do that, they're going to start growing. And here's the vexing thing is that the guy in number two is going to look up one day and go, how the hell has this guy grown 30% in the last two years and we're at 10%, right? And they're, and they're all going to be going, what's the one thing that they did better than us? And the thing is, is that in operations management, it's not the one thing. It's the death by, it's just eliminating all your own little fumbles. You know, it's scoring touchdowns in the red zone. It's just being better operationally and being quicker at doing it. And people are going to start pulling away and they're not going to understand why. And then they're going to press the advantage. They're going to do more advertising, more product development, better locations, better uh, incentives, more, you know, everything because they're going to have more revenue and it'll just go, it'll be Google and Bing. You know what I mean? It'll be like that kind of, or Google and Yahoo is probably a better example where all of a sudden one just goes through the roof and the other one's like floundering, you know? And that's gonna happen through just better, smarter operations and utilizing data to make better decisions faster. It, it makes me think in, this, in these dynamics, cause it does, it's gonna happen faster than it's ever happened before. We have sources of information that, I mean, I, I'm curious to your thoughts, like, are things like online reviews, are those worthwhile sources of this kind of information or do those tend to be so riddled with other noise that they're hard to use? Yeah. So there's one company and I can't think of their name right now. And it's funny because I'm meeting with my client that uses them like in two weeks, so I'll find out again. But so like, like I would love to interject customer satisfaction reviews into my platform. Um, Mainly, but I want to utilize them to try to get to the operational lever that broke versus just, mm -hmm. I didn't like my chicken. You know what I mean? Like, well, I didn't mm -hmm. like my chicken could be a lot of things. And I just need to figure out like, what do we fail operationally on so I can go fix it. But the problem with customer satisfaction reviews and online reviews, well, now online reviews are a lot bot, bot generated, especially on Amazon, you know, whatever. Plus Amazon's monkeying around with their products. So all their reviews are magically good and they get top billing and you know, whatever. So it's not like a fair thing. But the problem with customer satisfaction reviews is you either have to be insanely happy or your son was your waiter, so you gotta write a review about him, or you're so insanely pissed off, right? Like. Like I, you know, like it's generally those two extremes, those two fought that the top and the bottom 5%, right? All that. What these other guys are doing is they're just listening to the web and they're looking for the person who left, I don't know, whatever, McDonald's. Hey, the bathroom in that McDonald's on Wilshire Boulevard was a dumpster fire. And then they can they take that natural tweet and go, okay, hmm. dumpster fire, bad, McDonald's, Wilshire. Okay, hmm. you know. That's better. So you can listen to all that internet sentiment, but then you don't know part of what the problem with that is, is what happens if I'm just trying to make a joke and be ironic, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's gonna get spilled. Like, I don't know that we all need to like, hey, call that McDonald's on Wilshire and like fix this thing. And it might not even be a thing. So, I mean, honestly, I think in reality, sales is your best customer satisfaction review, but then I guess that would discount marketing. It's tough. I think it's going to have to, you know what it is? Here's why I'm struggling with this. It's not one thing. It's got to be a weighted average of insane people on the internet, insane people doing customer satisfaction reviews, uh, repair data, service data. You know what I mean? Like 
you have to take 10 different sources and merge them all together. And I don't think anyone's really doing that yet. Like, I don't think there's a guy out there that's going, here's what these people tweeted about you. Here's what your customer satisfaction said. Here's how many repairs we've had. Here's how many return orders we had, you know, or repeat orders. I know a guy in advertising and he was saying how these people yelled at him. He's like, you didn't do a good job. You know, like you only got like one time sales. And he was like, yeah, you didn't do a good job because I got you a ton of one time sales and no one liked the product. So they never bought it again. So who didn't do a good job? Like, let's like look at this, like, you know, realistically, I brought in a hundred thousand people that never bought it again. So you tell me where the fail was, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I would add to that too, there's active manipulation or degradation of even the data capture. Cause we, we live in a world where like, if you take an Uber ride, if you're not super happy and don't give five stars, then you clearly want this person fired. Like it's a five and four star scale, anything less than that, then you're just a crazy person. But like, if you give them four stars, something was clearly wrong. Or if you've ever, like for some reason, auto dealers seem to do this is that they will preempt you and say, if there's any reason you don't give us five stars, please let us know and we'll address it before you actually rate us on anything. It's that stupid JD power thing. No, I get like, I, so I bought a Wagoneer, right? And and it's a wonderful car. I've never had an American car, so I'm very excited. Yay, whatever. But I go to the service dealership and I'm filling out the survey before I get my car. And they're asking me questions like, did they take the mats out? Did they put your chair back where it was? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't been in the car yet, but you're forcing me to fill this out here. And also, but then they also like bribe me with a tank of gas yeah, for a hundred buck tank of gas. Hey, um, yeah, five stars, guys. Great job, five you know? stars. Yeah. But, um, well, you know, it's interesting. And this is where I, my system, like, so I do something that I don't think anybody else can do. Um, and one of the things that makes my system amazing is because we built a business logic engine that's like the best. So imagine like, uh, not to, I'm not ripping on my competitors, but imagine Excel without functions and, and without functions, without okay. being able to sum or calculate or do any of that. That's what a lot of the platforms in my space are like, or they have very hard coded functions that they can do a couple of things. I'm more like Excel with functions. So I can do all kinds of crazy stuff. So the big thing that I struggle with, and it's funny because I'm we're starting the exploration of predictive modeling and AI and machine learning in our business. The problem I deal with is that I, I'm letting people collect this data for me. Like, and obviously I would rather have sensor data than, you know, but whatever, there's no sensor that tastes ranch dressing and tells you it tastes good. So I got to have a human do it. But like, I struggle with pencil whipping and I struggle with the bad incentives that govern these businesses that I can't control that create, uh, you know, like an area manager has an incentive to identify issues in their restaurants, in their stores, but only to a point, because at some point, if they go, oh, my stores suck, then someone above them is going to go, well, that's because you suck, so you got to go. So, like, there's just all these bad incentives from yeah. the human capture of data. And I think it's called the Hawthorne effect, too. I have to, I have to remember I look it up. But that's when you can, like, actually skew the data in a certain direction, kind of like your car dealership thing where they're like, oh, no, you guys say JD Power. But, like, and so I do have some stuff that I built that I don't think anyone else has because I control the data collection and the analysis. So if you're just getting Microsoft BI and you're hooking it to an Excel, a SQL database, you have no clue how the data got into those tables or how it was manipulated coming in. I can control. I can track how you're filling out the checklist. So I I can tell at least on some factors if you're doing it accurately or not. And so I can actually score the data. I call it data accuracy scoring, and I can tag it with accurate or not accurate. And how I I sell that or how I explain it to my customers is all the data, all the data you get from me is valuable. It's just valuable in different ways. If you wanted to look at like the spec on a specific item, you would only want to look at accurate data for that because you wouldn't want to base your decision off of a bunch of lies. But then if you want to, now you have all this not accurate data, that's really useful for training and coaching purposes to, to address to the people the why behind doing this better and correctly, right? So I can do this data accuracy scoring thing, but that's really what I struggle with. And, I, and I'm really becoming concerned about it. 
as we start to move into predictive analytics and AI and all that kind of stuff, because garbage in, garbage out, like they use the most cliche term of all data analysis. Like if I'm trying to make correlations based off of inaccurate data, what kind of correlation am I going to get? But I also think that that's how I'm going to be able to identify to the client, hey, dude, you got to go manage your people and do this correctly, because if you don't, then all this predictive analytics that you're dying to get your little greedy hands on isn't going to be worth a toot if you don't figure this out. So you got to go back and like start managing your business better and explaining the why so that I can actually give you an insight that's going to help you uh, win. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's what's important. Winning is what's important here. And like, to me, it's like, cause you talk about operations management, we've talked about continuous improvement or agile or whatever. And there's a thing that seems to be like, not obvious to everybody else is that if you are going to do continuous improvement, improvement, important part of that word, it means you have to accept that you are not perfect. Now you yes. have to have some deficiencies to be able to improve. Don't try to hide them and then say, oh, well, now there's nothing to, there's there's no value in that data. And that it comes back to a term that I coined earlier on in this podcast, uh, is it not this episode, but earlier in an earlier episode is, is there's this problem with data justification. Instead of being data driven, we're going and we're trying to justify our actions through data by plucking out or managing, massaging that data to fit our narrative. And at that yeah. point, why are we even bothered? You, you've just destroyed everything that made this valuable. Well, and I would take it one step further is some people get punished for telling the truth. And the, yeah. the best way to make bad decisions is to yell at people when they identify an actual issue, right? Yeah. And so like, and you know, and we're, we're always trying to preach to people, look, it's not bad that you found something that was wrong. It just mean it, what's bad is when you don't solve it correctly, right? Or you don't fix the problem. And a lot of times, especially in the restaurant industry, my clients are dealing with food safety issues. And food safety is not something you can put a pin in after lunch. Hey, these mashed potatoes are like 68 degrees. They're just breeding disease. Well, we'll just deal with that at two after we serve 80 servings of them. You know what I mean? And like that's you can't do that kind of stuff. And so what we have to try to because some of these guys are like, I can't believe that was out of temp. And you're like, dude, you don't know why. So part of what we do in our checklist is we always we can take real time action even when they're disconnected. If something's out of whack, we can ask for a comment or take somebody down a path to remediate the thing or get a photo or something. But like, really, what we have to do is accept, once again, if things are going to be wrong, it's what's more important is that we handled and fixed them, that we identified it. That was the whole point of this. And then we fixed it before it affected customer satisfaction, safety, whatever it was. And, and you, you know, like, and this is like, like the problem with this, and you kind of pointed it out, is that you have data, which is this clean, beautiful, like in a vacuum, you know. What is that Comer's favorite line? Communism works, Marge, in, in a vacuum, you know, whatever. I'm doing that quote wrong and I'm disgusted with myself. But, but then people get their dirty fingers into it. And like everything else, people start ruining things because they do what the car dealership's doing. The car dealership really cared how I thought about my Wagoneer. They would let me fill out that survey when I got home, not at the dealership when the guy's like trying to nail me to fill it out and give them all fives. Like you said, my car salesman told me that. You got to give me all fives, man. I get like penalized. Like we get, I don't get paid. Like, you know, they come and beat my mom with a pipe. Like you got to give me fives, you know? And you're like, what the? Maybe I don't want to give you fives, but I don't want your mom to get beat up either. So I guess I should probably do it. But yeah, it's like people start, they have their agenda. It's like every, it's like everything else, man. People corrupt it and ruin it. And like, and then you don't get the value out of it. And that's the other problem. Like it's the same problem that those guys were having with the training. We trained everybody. Look, they all passed mm -hmm. this test. Look. And then you go out into the field and you're like, why aren't we seeing the expected ROI that everybody sold us on by making this change? Well, I don't know. And then here's what they do is like, well, you know what it was? The training probably didn't work correctly. So we should do more training on the training. Or what we'll see a lot of times too is because people aren't doing the checklist correctly, then because people weren't following the process and we didn't see the expected change or benefit from the process, 
people go, okay, they're not doing the process. So we obviously failed in the training or what we need is another process to check that this process is getting done correctly. So then they just keep layering on training and process and training and process until eventually it's so convoluted that nobody knows what's going on versus just managing your team to do what they're supposed to do correctly the first time. That's the simplest, easiest way possible is change the process. Just make sure that people follow the process. That's it. But they can't do that because they don't have good employees or they don't have good spans of control or whatever it might be. And so then they just keep layering it on. And then then, then everyone just goes, nah, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I'm just not going to do it. Screw it. Whatever. You're going to fire me? You know, that's what they get to that attitude. Yeah. Well, Tommy, I could talk to you all day because at some point this just became therapy for me. Like this yeah. is just, you know. It's okay. Let me give you a hug. Come on. It'll be okay. So, but uh, we are way, way over time at this point. So, but before we go, what's the best way for folks to find you? You know, if you're interested in learning more about operations management and just my thoughts on it, hit me on LinkedIn. Love to talk to you. Go to the Ops Analytica website. It'll be in the show notes. And you can start a chat or just say, hey, I want to talk to Tommy. I just have to, I want to wrap with people and just chat about this. And part of my job now, which I'm very, I think the best job is I'm all about trying to find new verticals and use cases, right? That's all I, that's all I do. That's my main job. So I want to talk to you about what you're dealing with and think, can I help you? You know, if I can help you, great. And if I can't, I'm glad to know it. So I don't keep going down that path. So check us out on the website or, uh, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn or whatever. You can get in contact with me. Um, but I would love to talk to you about what you're going through and see if I can help because we can do some cool stuff. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, I'll just, I mean, I have so many companies that started with two or three and have hundreds. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's like the most proudest thing I've ever, you know, that's, I'm so proud of that because they obviously that's saw value and just kept going with it. Right. That's that's awesome. Tommy, Tommy, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been thank you guys. Just it was absolutely a pleasure. fun. Love it. Yeah, so cool. So and thank you all for joining us today. As all as always, you'll find more information and links in the show notes. Go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out our past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. If you're enjoying data leadership lessons and are interested in electric vehicles, check out my new podcast at electricdrives.us. We give you the information you need to transition to your electric vehicle future. And as always, stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 